0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Anthropological, real-life applications for very anthropological theories. My name is David Moore. I'm a Chicago-based bartender and founder of Spill, and this episode is going to bring up some serious daddy issues that ugh, I just don't know if y'all are ready for.
1: Not a cliffhanger. Hi, everyone. Not a cliffhanger. Not a cliffhanger. Um, Hi, everyone. I am Kasira Hill, your local Chicago graphic designer anthropologist. And um, today, it is sunny outside, and it's beautiful. And I'm ashy. Who's got the lotion?
0: (laughs) Oh, my god. I was not prepared for that. (sighs) Oh, my god. Goodness, everybody, we're going to be talking about nostalgia today, and uh, we're about to get into it in a three and a two and a one.
1: All right, so let's get into some anthropological theory. I want to talk about the selfish gene as an evolutionary theory and how that can be applied to a more cultural understanding or a cultural feeling of nostalgia and how that serves a purpose so let's get into it the selfish gene is a not only a theory but a book written by richard dawkins in 1976 and this is a book that essentially explains the concept of the fact that genetic code genetic variations and adaptations are only going to stay in the in our genetic code as we evolve as they serve a purpose so the selfish gene is the concept of a gene that is you know i don't like to use the word fighting too much but you have other genes other variations and this one kind of emerges the winner um over a period of time right evolution takes a long time and the concept is, is that right Nothing is going to sustain itself in our genetic code that doesn't necessarily serve a purpose, right? We don't need fins. We shed that genetic code off. Um, We no longer need to walk on all fours. It's more important that we run. We shed those genetic codes off. And when it comes to the idea of nostalgia, initially when me and David were drafting up uh, the concept of this episode, I wanted to talk about why it is that we like our family's recipes, uh, maybe our aunt's mac and cheese, for example, more than, you know, home down the street. And it made me kind of laugh the fact that the idea of the selfish gene came to mind um, as the anthropological theory to throw in here, because, of course, in one hand, this is something that's very much so used in conversations of evolution and genetic code and all of that biological genetics that I'm not really into. But on a, on another end, it, it seemed really cool to, to think about something so cultural and something so emotional, like the idea of nostalgia. And being able to frame that um, within, you know, such a such an evolutionary theory, you know, kind of concept. So when we think about nostalgia or rather when I think about nostalgia in, in consideration of the idea of the selfish gene is the things that we feel nostalgia for are often something of a cultural expression or a regional experience or a family experience, right? Just like I said, I like my aunt's mac and cheese more than homegirls down the street. And it's because I'm close with my aunt. I have a relationship with this food. I have Um, yeah I have a long-standing relationship with this food and it serves a purpose for me I want this information to be then dissipated um, through the next generation because I feel nostalgic about it and so much like you know in the genetic code we're only really utilizing the things that serve a purpose it is still information dispersal and I talk a lot about um, information dispersal in this season but I think it's really interesting to think about something so cultural in the perspective of of genetic theory. And I think the things that we're nostalgic about at the fundamental level serve a purpose for us in some way or another. So it's basically the same kind of concept of this as the selfish gene, right? Nothing we're holding on to, um, it, you know, doesn't serve a purpose and doesn't, whether it's a recipe that's written down or a mood that we have at the dinner table or even something as grandiose as like how we forage or or build our houses in an environment, all of that kind of nostalgia is attached to something that serves a purpose. So if you're listening now, I want to kind of challenge your little anthropological brain, my little anthropological brain, and consider the evolutionary reason behind why humans have the capability, the capacity to feel nostalgic about something. And I want you to think about how that pertains to what I said about the selfish gene, right? Stuff that maintaining cultural or physical acts that serve a purpose. And so I think that our emotions of nostalgia and how we keep things that we're nostalgic about you know, um, close to us, how we dissipate that information, especially in in a global society now where we can share information digitally, we can keep archives in libraries and not have them, you know, degrade away. I challenge you to kind of think about maybe why us as humans have this emotional capacity to feel nostalgic about stuff. Um, What purpose does that serve, right? If we're feeling nostalgic about a meal or a environment or a connection that we had to an individual or a community, those feelings that we have um, have a purpose. And also, you know, the things that we have those feelings for have a purpose. And so I'm going to wrap this up in the means of, you know, the selfish gene is um, kind of at the fundamental level of where I'm thinking about nostalgia because I'm always thinking, right, about why we do things, how does it serve a purpose, evolutionarily speaking, why would it make sense for us to have nostalgia, excuse me, nostalgia about things, Um, and that emotion being kind of a potent part of how we keep our history, how we dissipate information, how we share and get uh, more connected with folks, right? When we share uh, feelings of nostalgia for the same thing, now we feel of, you know, of a similar community or something like that. So I'm bringing all of that up to lay the groundwork. Let's switch gears.
0: All right, let's have a kiki. I have some TT. Cassira, you laid out that anthropological context so gorgeously. I just want to now break it down and let's talk about our own experiences with nostalgia. I I was excited about this episode and I feel like that was some great kind of groundwork for how the rest of this episode is going to go, especially when we start talking to Korsha. Um, but for me, I think of nostalgia in, uh, like, I think the word reminds me of like warm, fuzzy feelings. and I also feel like nostalgia can bring back memories that I'm like, oh, I kind of associate certain foods and beverages now with maybe not so fuzzy moments. And so for me, for those that don't know, um, I grew up in a Jewish household where my father uh his whole side of the family is is quite i mean is jewish and grew up in israel and i am part israeli and i grew up in israel as well and my mother is christian and her whole family is is quite christian um and uh, grew up in <laughs> wheaton illinois uh which you know is super similar to israeli Middle Eastern culture. So anyway, uh we grew up in with kind of this uh combination of different cultures meeting at the dinner table and i really loved being at the dinner table for passover or for pesach and for uh for hanukkah or hanukkah and i liked what my dad prepared for us uh you know or when we lived in israel what my grandparents um prepared for us. I liked the food. I loved the feeling of the dishes that were coming out there. It was my introduction to wine. It was my introduction to beer because all the parents were eating and drinking for these incredibly hefty, hefty communal meals. And those were all things that bring me a lot of joy in thinking about. Uh, At the same time, they bring me a hint of trauma. Not because anybody did anything in particular to make me feel you know anything other than joyful and full of food but I was a closeted gay kid sitting in a fairly conservative circle of religious kind of banter and I just always sort of associated that with like needing to behave a certain way around the dinner table which sticks with you which is has stuck with me and how I am probably around the dinner table still with my family when I go to see them. Um, so nostalgia kind of did this Dual dual thinking for me I'm curious about what it did, did for you When we decided to do this episode
1: Yeah I mean When I first um, thought about This episode and I Expressed it a little bit in the anthropological um, Theory Discussion is just um, The idea of Intergenerational Communication and Communicating traditions Or um, you know, whether those traditions be lofty and, you know, serve no actual, like tangible purpose other than a cultural experience in a moment. Um, but also, you know, traditions, um, just having to do with, yeah, if you farm this way, then you're going to get, you know, you're going to sow your food and it's going to be more efficient. Or if you grind up grain this way, it's going to be more efficient or, or, you know, time consuming or whatever. But I think when I think about nostalgia, um, especially around food, I we all have nostalgia about what we grew up when we ate or what we ate when we grew up. <laughs> what we ate, tomato potato. Like um, yeah, what we what we ate when we grew up, what we experienced with our family, the things that we preferred and the things that we didn't prefer. Um, you know, that's all there. But I think I have a certain nostalgia for foods and especially like. I'll I'll bring it home to black food, soul food cuisine and all the ways that it's represented. I have nostalgia for that. um, That isn't necessarily attached to me consuming that food because I was raised vegan. So a lot of soul food and a lot of soul food traditions, um, you know, optimize on food products that are either scrapped to the side or, you know, diaspora um, influences and, um, you know, cultural traditions that were brought over um you know folks in the diaspora so I have a connection and nostalgia for black food in a way that isn't necessarily attached to consumption and I think that that's an interesting you know place to be because on one end um you know you can appreciate something without having it but how much can you appreciate something without without having it what do you think about that I I
0: I don't know if I can I don't know if I fully relate to it I don't I because I feel like I've never had a dietary restriction or I never kind of avoided certain foods and drinks so I was always pretty open to consuming whatever was related to like that moment in my life I was actually going to ask you with you not having consumed that food is there any form of that nostalgia that you try to maintain today I mean do you try to uphold any of these experiences from your childhood or growing up around these types of foods or do you sort of not maintain it or are you just sort of enjoying the remnant
1: yeah i think it i think it goes um hand in hand with you know just self-identifying um, as a black person and, and holding black culture true in everything that I do. So I think if you think about it through that lens, um, you know, nostalgia can, can open up a little bit. Cause you might have nostalgia for food that you haven't had in a very long time or a cultural moment, um, on the other side of the world, right. That you're not experiencing anymore or that you barely remember. And I think that, you know, we can also have nostalgia, Um, for, you know, experiences like the idea of going to, you know, Champagne, France and the kind of you know broad experience right so we can consume something that isn't necessarily attached to a place or we can not consume something and have yet to have that experience but still hold that really true to ourselves and you know whether we're aspiring to go to a place like champagne or we um are thinking back and and kind of holding that culture you know black food culture in in my um in my lens, you know, true without having to maintain it in a certain way. I think, um, that kind of brings us to, you know, how how do we keep record or how do we hold uh things that we're nostalgic for um for ourselves, you know, do you write things down? Do you, uh, you know, grab your grandmother's cookbook? Do you, you know, just communicate to your friend or your partner a really awesome recipe that you hold very true? Um, Yeah, what do you think about, you know, the medium in which we keep uh, things that we're nostalgic about? I think especially around recipes, I'm kind of curious.
0: Yeah, I love writing down, uh, you know, everything that I create. I, I'll say this, for, it's sort of again a little dual tone here, but I for <laughs> drinks, I write down all the recipes that I make at home, and I have I have a written collection of any drink I've probably ever put on a menu or ever just R and D for uh, for whatever or just you know fucked around with at home, and I love the feeling of like writing on paper with pen what I've put together because i like looking back at things um and also sort of seeing my journey through it and i think i feel that journey better when it's through handwriting rather than through um typing it up or even recording it you know i i prefer seeing my cuz i weirdly enough i see also the growth of my handwriting and my penmanship and i can like tell where i was at in my life when i was writing that stuff it seems so stupid but it's cuz i write in cursive and i have um i have my mother's handwriting and i see where i started writing in cursive it was like right when i started writing down recipes to where i am now and i like my penmanship's so specific so i like sort of following that and and that's how i maintain drink recipes now with food i know i don't write down a single food item i've ever made mostly because <laughs> i've only only during this pandemic have i really become a decent cook and understood how to like not burn toast and so i i've only now gained an appreciation for food recipes with but my mom and my my mom's my maternal grandfather—he was a, a baker—and my and everybody on my, my mom's side were incredible bakers. And my mom is a baker herself, um, and she wrote the entire Angel Family Cookbook uh, for us to have as kids. So all the cousins got a copy of this for like Christmas a few years ago, where it was all the baking items, that baked goods that we got to have as kids that we all grew up on that we all have shared together. So for us, that was a huge deal for me because I love looking at recipes and I have a whole collection of cookbooks, whether I even go through them and cook the things or not. I just love seeing recipes written down. And I am now nostalgic with that because I grew up on this food. I love to see it. I love to have it in my hand. I wish she she wrote it out because I love seeing her handwriting with it. But to be able to have like a cookbook of my mom's baking as a kid is a is a way that I get to maintain it and kind of be nostalgic of it and then create, recreate it every season.
1: I love that. Um, writing it down. Yeah. I mean, don't get me started about the dynamics and the nuances, um, mm. around, you know, black food culture, especially as it, 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 in regards to written record. Right. I think that we're going to have a really interesting conversation with, um, with someone we already said her name um but with someone um in a second where when i was experiencing new orleans for the first time and uh being there for resistance served um all of the nuances around how uh diaspora and black Food culture is kept, and how that information has traveled, or the efforts of folks uh, right now, especially POC um, historians, archivists, folks, podcasters, etc. Are are bringing to light things that we may have lost, or things that um, now need to be transcribed from a, you know, we only have twenty copies of this old Creole cookbook. Now we get to have an amazing person, you know, come in and tell us more about that and communicate that on a on a digital sphere. You know what I mean, like digital archives and right. blah blah. So I think it's it's really interesting to fold in the understanding of um, how food and cultural food and you know recipes that make us nostalgic about how we grew up or what have you are kept on record but also like the dynamics of just social and and quite frankly how black folks were able to I'm and I'm clapping as I'm going right um as black you're feeling uh, it I'm feeling it as black folks are able to keep record um especially with with old You know um stuff that we weren't able to write down while black folks were enslaved or marginalized or this or that so it brings in a whole dynamic about you know where is that record kept who has access to that record and um and how do we how do we pull from the traditions that we may have lost or the nostalgia that maybe you know we lost you know six generations ago um, so I think in this conversation, as we lead it on with our guest, um, I'm interested to kind of understand the role of um, folks that keep those records, folks that are doing the work and the heavy lifting in um, in archiving stuff that may or may not have been lost uh, in a certain generation, and just the dynamic of of how we continue to communicate that nostalgia in in food and consumption and in, in tradition. Hi, Korsha, what's going on? Hi, I'm, you know,
2: I'm all right. I'm in quarantine like everybody else.
1: <laughs> yeah, deadass. How are you feeling today?
2: I'm feeling good, feeling good. Um, it's a little warm here, and, and I'm in New Jersey, in Jersey City. Um, and so, yeah, it's not as cold as it has been. So, I'm feeling good.
1: Love that. How about you? I'm doing okay. I'm in Portland, I'm back to the Pacific Northwest, and um, back to my roots you know what I'm saying I'm feeling good about that got some humidity going on some mild weather my skin's doing great um I'm hanging out with my family and it's all safe and lovely so I am thriving thank you for asking um I am I miss that humidity yes (laughs) the humidity is so good for the skin the skin it's all about the skin um so thank you for joining us I am so glad to have you um with us for this conversation, because um, when I think about nostalgia, when I think about how we hold and keep um, food culture and all of the things that tie into that, um, you're one of the first person people that I thought of. Um, in regards to this topic because of your work and um, I'm so thankful to have met you from um, resistance serve 2019 joining us there and I feel like with this conversation some of those notes um, that Ashton and I kind of communicated with the first resistance served about the roots of hospitality and the roots of food culture and and how we hold that information sacred or how we um, provide more information to those, um, coming next kind of ties into this conversation. So I wanna give for those um, of our audience that don't know what you do um, or are excited to hear more, um, I'm gonna give some space for you to intro yourself and, the, and what you're up to.
2: Yeah, so one, it's so great to be here with you and David um, and just talking about um, this topic of nostalgia, which I, I think a lot about uh, in regards to my work with food writing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I write about food, I write about restaurants, and I, but really what I truly love to do is to interview people and talk to people about why they love food, why they love working with food, um, why they're not doing something else. Um, I think I noticed kind of a gap in terms of the food landscape, who was being asked questions, who was being asked their story, who was being called brilliant. Um there were all these people doing incredible work that just weren't getting enough attention, in my opinion. And so I really wanted to use my writing and use my, po- my podcast, Hungry Society, to talk to those people. Um, and it's been such a rewarding experience.
0: I have to say, I first off, I'm a fan of your podcast.
2: Oh, thank and, you. <laughs>
0: I think that what's so great about having you on is that there is sort of a parallel ethos of what Spill attempts to do and what you're doing, which is about just dis- about changing the kind of culture of who gets to be heard, which voices get to be amplified on discussions within food media. And it is sort of an ongoing theme with a lot of what we're doing with, with any of these interviews, which is, you know, if it is somebody who is already getting interviewed a lot for things, sort of putting them on that stand and being like, what do you think of yourself being, getting all that um, attention and and what are the kind of pros and cons of it? And so I, when Kasira is introducing the subject of nostalgia, I'm curious, I want to give you kind of space to talk about this a little bit. Why do you find it so important to ensure that we are asking um, people outside the current kind of mainstream interviewees about food um, culture history and, and why are the people that are currently, I don't wanna call them star that's sort of in the bartending industry, but the people that are currently getting the biggest platforms, um, why do you think it's so important to kind of change the landscape of that?
2: Yeah, it's um, for me with food writing, it's not just about, oh, this is where you need to go eat right now, because it's super, it's the hot restaurant, like I could care less about that. It's more about documentation. And so it's a looking like looking at the landscape and looking at people who are contributing in like a super meaningful way, and that doesn't have to look like a fine dining restaurant that doesn't have to look like a a hot pop up or a brewery or anything. It could be um, someone who is making pickles that you know a recipe that like their their grandmother gave them, and they're selling it online. Um, I think that. It's so funny you say like mainstream, I think for a little bit there, chef, I hate the term like chefs are rock stars or, you know, right, right. This super sort of superficial, like looking at food culture and it unfortunately, like making uh, people into these sort of like gods almost. Um, I think we've gone from that into making people like influencers in food, um, which isn't Again, it's not getting to the to the idea that like there's a full landscape and everyone's value and worth is equal. Um, and I guess that's, if I had to like boil it down to like sort of a nucleus of my work, it's that everyone's story is valuable. Everyone's story is worthy of being highlighted. Um, yeah, and you know, as a writer, I like to cover other people, but I, recently realized that I'm also like talking about myself and documenting myself and my family's story in my work, which is super powerful. And especially when thinking about nostalgia, it's, it's been a really powerful thing.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your, your personal, your personal relationship with nostalgia, your own family recipes, things that you hold true to your heart and you try to Mm -hmm. sort of uh, continue on as you grow as well?
2: Yeah. So I grew up, um, I'm half Caribbean, half Southern, so my mom is from the Virgin Islands, and we still have family there. Uh, she moved to Maryland when she was 16, and my dad's side of the family is from Virginia, Virginia Beach, um, and so I grew up eating Caribbean food and Southern food, and some of my best memories of my entire life are eating with my family, and it's always seafood, like either family. It was fish, it was crabs, it was love it. It was always a communal sort of experience where we were gathered around like a big pile of crabs or fried whiting and to this day those are some of my favorite foods to eat and some of my favorite food memories. It's I've had so many stories where it's like the nugget of those memories and the nostalgia for those memories and those dishes is like the impetus for writing a story and talking to other chefs about what those dishes mean to them. Um, But it is also, nostalgia can kind of be a dangerous thing because it can kind of give you these rose-colored sort of glasses on memories that maybe weren't 100% positive. Um, I had a talk with some chef friends of mine about how we remember these things, these memories that, especially food memories that make us feel like really good and really fuzzy. But for some of us, food was the way that we felt connected in like maybe family experiences that weren't so great. And so nostalgia becomes like kind of this beautiful yet dangerous sort of thing that can make you feel really good, but not tell you the full truth sometimes. Um, And so I try to keep that in mind as I work on food stories, which is why like, reporting is great because you get to just lay out the story and there's not so much of like me trying to say how I feel about it. I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
1: No, it absolutely does. And I think um, it's, this kind of conversation for me is, is really rooted in an understanding that so much of how we move through the world um, and Mm -hmm. how we identify ourselves are, are established through memories of our culture and memories of our family memories of the things that we consume which is you know cultural food this this and that etc so I think all of these kind of human experiences that we're talking about lend to an understanding of of nostalgia in the ways of how that makes us who we are and how we how we remember things and again like nostalgia has to do has to do with memory but it also has to do with record and I think that um on one end, right, there's there's spoken and story or, or vocal record of, of things that make us feel nostalgic or things that are um, representative of our kind of cultural experience. And then there's things that are written down or, you know, uh, drawn out or, you know, shaved onto a, a stone slab or whatever, but... Um, I think uh, the idea of of written record and experiential or memory nostalgia as it as it plays in um is interesting when we think about uh, food culture and specifically interesting when we think about marginalized and or um food culture that isn't um widely available, I would say maybe might be the word um in in mainstream in mainstream culture and what i mean by that is like i think it's uh, i tie it in because i'm thinking back to um the lessons that i learned in um doing resistance serve for 2019 and just being in new orleans for the first time really experiencing a different level of food culture Um, That I hadn't as someone from the Pacific Northwest and the level of nostalgia and ritual and deeper meaning um, Behind some of the specifically the food um, That's there and I think that really made a heavy impact and I have nostalgia just learning just looking back and learning um, From those moments or looking back at moments that really impacted me that I learned from Um, So yeah I want to go and shift. Sorry, David, please
0: I was just gonna say and Koresha you kind of I love this sort of idea that nostalgia has a sort of beauty but also can provide a little bit of trauma to a certain extent and I I I mean literally just this morning I got a text message from my dad asking if my boyfriend and I would be coming over for Passover dinner at the end of the month and it immediately brought back a ton of memories of me as a kid enjoying Passover dinner and I was trying to like kind of remember it or pinpoint the way it made me feel because very I wasn't even really thinking about the food that was going to be served but I was really thinking about the things that I felt around that dinner table and there's something that I couldn't get out of my head which was especially when I wasn't out that there was something about sitting in a very close-knit um religious family being a closeted uh, gay kid not doing a very good job at it i think everybody secretly knew but there was something about i just had this immediate memory of like how it made me feel and so then i have just associated passover with the food i've actually heavily associated it with the the way that it has made me look at religious dining settings so that you know it's just a specific example of how i'm now thinking of the word nostalgia And although the word sounds really lovely and, you know, ethereal, there's really layers and nuances to it that are that aren't always so, you know, pretty.
2: Absolutely. It's, you know, completely it's colored by so many different things. And I think we do give it this kind of one note positive connotation, but it can mean so much and it's different depending on who you're speaking to. And so when we're talking about documentation, that's when it can get super tricky because I think in food media uh, up until recently, there was this like incredible urge to like paint everything in this sort of rosy way where it's like, oh, we sit down and have red beans and rice and everything's great. <laughs> and you know, yeah. <laughs> that's not the case. If red beans and rice could solve uh, all of the ills of society, then like we would have done it by now. Yes. That's just not how food works. <laughs> I thought it would have so, worked by now. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, nostalgia is, it's, I guess it, it depends on how you use it. it an entry point to something else or is it just where you're ending up? Because if it's just the ending of something, then you're kind of missing the nuances of all of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good lead into kind of, uh, I would love to hear more um, about what you kind of bring to the table and what your intentions are as someone that writes and and talks um, about food culture and and many things beyond that, right? So I'm kind of curious to know, what do you step into your role or what are the major kind of points and intentions that you have um as a as a person that's kind of documenting um some of these these nuanced food culture nostalgic all these hot words that we've been saying kind of moments
2: i mean the major intention is just um, adding to the record um, and making sure that people who are doing great work are highlighted and remembered. Um, because I get so frustrated when I look back for information on black chefs and I can't find it. Um, I don't want future generations to have to look as hard as I do to find those stories. I want them to be able to listen to A Hungry Society or find a piece that I've written for somewhere else. Um, another big part that has been or become more and more apparent over this past year or so is I want to really make sure that Black culinarians know that we are enough as we are. So, you know, we've had many, many talks. I'm talking about the food community as a whole about, you know, mainstream food culture and them not doing a good job of highlighting us and highlighting chefs of color or non-binary chefs or differently abled chefs. And that's true, but, I think divesting from giving these publications so much importance is really important. Like, I I don't, I'm learning to operate from a place that is completely rooted in and centered in the beauty and breadth of Black food. And it may include a piece from Food and Wine, it may include a piece from, New York Times or you know any of these other legacy publications but even if it never did I could look to things like for the culture I could look to things like while entertaining I could look to things like Tony Tipton Martin's work like Jessica B Harris's work Edna Lewis and that's enough I don't I will die a happy woman if I never hear the phrase a seat at the table ever again. (laughs) Like, I hate that phrase with a passion. (laughs) Um, I don't want a seat at a table that didn't even think to ask me in the first place to be there. Right. Like, you know, I just, I want to let it be known that the work that's being done by Black folks is enough and beautiful and its own entire galaxy we don't necessarily need to be included in whatever the world they're building
1: yeah and to that point i'm kind of curious because now we live in an age where so much information can be stored in in different modes and and access to that information is is ever expanding in regards to um, you know no longer do we need to go to a library that has one copy of this old cookbook that was really hard to find or you know what I mean like uh, some of these things are being digitized and etc So I'm interested to know your opinion um, as we kind of wrap here about, the role that nostalgia or rather the the relationship between nostalgia and the traditional ways i would quote unquote traditional ways that we archive information whether it be written or spoken and and, you know transferred through stories and such um in this new media wave you know we've got podcasts we've got this so what's the relationship do you feel between how we keep um things sacred um and information close while also living in an age where we can spread this information wide and give access to a lot of folks. Kind of pocketed there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sacred
2: is such an interesting word, I think. Hmm, Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if a medium can be sacred, but I think that definitely uh, maybe a topic can, but I don't even know if I agree with that. Um, you know, so I think about this with podcasts, like there's a podcast, boom, will it go away one day? And then, you know, 20 years from now where people be like, Oh my God, podcasting, everyone's doing it again. Like, I think different mediums go in and out of style. Um, but I think in terms of nostalgia, I don't think that nostalgia in terms of different mediums can never be a bad thing because I think mm-hmm.
1: I'm coming for a place where like I will always appreciate like a handwritten postcard from a mm-hmm. recipe that's stored in an old book and it's in an archive. And that's amazing to see not only the handwriting, but kind of the age and the wear and tear visually of 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 how. Um, that information has been kept and I'm a dork for it. But, I'm, you know, this is the archaeologist in me is like, I love old things and I love to dig them <laughs> out of archives and look at them and blah, blah, blah. But I think that um, something that is well, mm-hmm, please,
2: I think in that instance, like when you put it that way, that can definitely be sacred that feels like a sacred text because there is this personal sort of self-documentation that's happening when someone writes down a recipe on a card and stores it away and you find it however many years later, or it's given to you, that's definitely sacred. That's like the exchanging of insider knowledge and nourishment, right? But like, I'm thinking like in terms of like a food magazine, like I have old issues of uh, the first few issues of like cuisine noir. Um, and I would definitely think that feels sacred too, in a different way. Um, yeah, I think I'm gonna
1: think about that for a minute. That's um I didn't mean to throw you a curve. I kind of got <laughs> I kind of got very theoretical there, and we're trying to keep it like no, I love big questions. yeah, next next interrogation <laughs> like question
0: starting now. <laughs> I I have to say, Koresh, your work, I mean, your work genuinely inspires me because I think it's what I get excited about with what people are up to right now, which is trying to create, um, first off, I'm going to eliminate the phrase seat at the table out of my vocabulary, but trying to create
1: Delete.
0: space for those that are doing really great work that just aren't getting the amplification that other Create, you know, creators out there are already getting. I was talking to N- right. Nicole Marcelin the other day about her work with Epicurious Safari and the kind of pop-up um, experiences she does revolving around Haitian cuisine. And she was, we were talking about sort of the controversy around La Maison Velier right now, and this. And she was bringing up this um, <laughs> this idea that there's so many people that have a curiosity around um, this style of cuisine and black food. And yet the publications that are writing about it will put like um, one special, you know, article up every six months about it to kind of put in their little sprinkle of of enlightenment on it. You know, they want to make sure that when people look up the articles that are being written for food and wine or for these documents that you are for these publications that you mentioned that there is something there but it's not heavily focused on it's usually the same um, folks being interviewed over and over again for the same topics and we're rarely getting to hear from people's experiences that are truly immersed in that culture come from those countries come from these backgrounds grew up with this food around the table that can really talk about it from not only a very um pragmatic sense of the food itself but like an emotional sense their emotional connection to this culture so thank you so much for kind of talking about all this and and opening up your thoughts about um how we can continue to sort of grow in this uh in this realm
2: i thank you so much for the kind words it's been if i'm being a super honest like the past year the idea of being a food writer has been like (laughs) what is the point (laughs) like it's you know it's so I really appreciate that
0: you're doing it we love it thank you for joining us today (laughs) Corisha.
2: thank you so much for having me this has been great
0: sis what was that all about
1: What was that conversation? What's going down? Um, I really liked what Korsha had to say um, about like as she was speaking, I was I was thinking so much about um, this new modern way that records and recipes and um, food culture and traditions that we hold close um, are being kept and digitized and as Corsha I mean I immediately thought of Corsha when we were drafting out um, this topic because I was like sis runs a podcast and has these conversations uh, every day you know she's a food writer so she's having these conversations and expressing them and sharing them on a on a wide scope with a wide variety of people um, because it's digitized so I think that you know, I want to hear your takeaways, but I also want to follow that up with, you know, the are, are you a purist in feeling that you should hold things sacred and close? And maybe it's written, maybe it's just kept within the family or, you know, the dynamic of, of being able to make stuff widely available that we hold true and, and that we feel nostalgic about. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. I'm not a purist. I do love re, I, you, as you know, I like writing down, you know, recipes and I do love seeing my family's recipes through the years. And like, I, I'm somebody who like cries at the drop of, you know, a hat when it's anything family related. And it's, and it's so funny because I'm not even that much of a family person, but I just love my mom so fucking much. And I just love everything she does. And so I get emotional when I see like my mom or her parents recipes written down somewhere. And I I like being able to to pass that down generation to generation. Even if the food is like so mediocre, it just means something to me to be able to do that for my future potential, maybe, maybe not children. With that being said, I'm a believer of yes, making information accessible to all. Like it's sort of just an ethos of mine that that recipes should be made available. I always thought that cocktail bars should be open to giving out their recipes to guests when they ask. I've been to bars that like don't allow it because it's quote unquote proprietary. I'm like, just give out the fucking recipe. But I also do think that where you've said it a lot and you said it so beautifully, which is when so much of, of Black history and Black food and Black culture is not written down and not digitized and, and has not been passed down because records were not kept of it. It's amazing that there is something kind of sacred that can be kept. And I, I, Yeah, th- there's something amazing that there's a sacred thing there that gets to be kept to your heart and to your kind of mind and soul That that I'm like, yeah, I don't really blame anybody for not wanting to share their own personal family recipes, especially when... I mean you've seen a lot of people there are so many people
1: out here taking it it. yeah Yeah. and
0: also make and call it their own and sort of profit off of another culture's you know own experiences so it's tough it's it is sort of a layered thing but for me yeah anything that I create will be made available mostly because I don't really care if you recreate it and make it your own who am I to complain about somebody taking poor old David's recipes and recreating it go for it
1: well, you know what I mean? Like, give credit where credit is due, right? So yeah. if that cocktail's terrible, at least your name was on it and we knew that it wasn't Homeboy that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then
0: happy this there.
1: is unbalanced. I, I
0: don't know. It feels good. It feels good to kind of reminisce on nostalgia and to, to hear y'all's perspective on it. Because I, you know, I like that we all three came from different kind of upbringings with food and consumption. And I think it really helps paint a picture that shows how religion can impact the food that we consume and then the nostalgia around that or or gender or race or the type of of experience that your parents set up for you i think it all really plays for an interesting conversation on nostalgia
1: thank you all for joining us for another episode of anthropological it's been beautiful thanks for sticking with us um see you next time sis
0: okay you know what (laughs) I am actually a little nostalgic on. We always talk over each other for this outro. <laughs> what I'm nostalgic on is Flavor of Love season one, um, and then comparing it to Flavor of Love season two. I don't know if you were a reality TV kid, but for me, that like Tiffany New York Pollard is my first dose of When like, I think of my joy as a child. It was watching her on TV. Yeah, I
1: wish I was um, a reality TV kid. I was a... Nat Geo History Channel Kid. And it shows. Oh my god. <laughs> <And it shows.
2: laughs> Look at her now.